Hello, and welcome to episode 100 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. We are very excited to be doing episode 100. Somehow, we have done 99 episodes in the past, if my math is correct. And if I was the sort of person to add a lot of sound effects, there would be, you know, birthday whistles and little songs and all that kind of stuff. We're not that kind of people, so it's more boring, but hopefully we'll bring you some excitement in the form of tennis content. So here's what we're going to do. Um, Over the last 24 hours or so, we've solicited questions from our friends and anybody else who happens to follow me on Twitter. And we got about... 35 suggestions of questions overall. Um, I had been making my own list of questions. Carl pitched in with several questions of his own. So for our 100th episode, we have a list of 100 questions, which we're going to try to answer all in the space of this one episode. Many of them um, would probably justify 10-minute discussions all on their own, but we're not going to do that because the math definitely doesn't work out for that. We're also not necessarily both going to answer every question. So more or less, we're going to alternate, not super strictly because a few of the questions are targeted specifically at me and I wouldn't want to um, subject Carl to that kind of uh, suffering. But we're going to go through the questions. They're, they're shuffled, so it's kind of a random mix. So if you don't like what you're listening to, then just you know stay tuned for another 30 seconds and maybe you'll like the next one better. Um, so Carl, before we, we start the lightning round to end all lightning rounds, do you have any, any final thoughts? I do. And given the time limits we're we're placing on this this may be my longest uh uninterrupted stream though hopefully not by much some of these questions are completely subjective so we'll just say what we think some of them are more predictive so please hold us to them in 10 20 30 years uh some of them really don't have any great answer but we're going to try and just remember if you don't like the answer there's there's 99 others on this show um I, and I also want to just say some things that Jeff wouldn't say about himself and about this show, but do it very quickly in the spirit of this episode. Though he kindly called me his co-host, this has always been his show, and he's we I've just had fun coming along for for many of the episodes and being along for the ride. And you know, even when I'm saying something about tennis that sounds smart, it's because of work he did and tennis abstract site that the podcast is named for. So. It's been fun to be here for, I don't know, 60-something, 70-something of the 100 episodes, whatever the number is, and I'm honored to be here for this one, but I'm really here as a guest and uh, a grateful one. Thanks, Jeff. Absolutely, and thank you. You are the, if a, if a guest, you are the number one guest among a an all-star cast, really, with especially with some of the guests I've been able to talk into joining me on the show lately, which has been fantastic um, for me, and hopefully the listeners have enjoyed it, too. So, yeah, and thanks everyone for listening. Somehow over four years we've gotten to 100 episodes. I've been picking up the pace lately, so maybe we're less than four years away from episode 200. We will see. Um, And one more prefatory note. Uh, Many of these questions came from two particular friends of the podcast, Petr Vets and Jeff McFarland. So I will refer to them by name as we go for questions that came from them, but I I won't really spell out who they are again. So um, Jeff is blogging at Hidden Game of Tennis. You can find both these guys on on Twitter, and they've both been on episodes of the show before, so long-time listeners will be familiar with them. So here we go. Question number one, and this is one from Petzer. What will be the next slam with full crowds in attendance? 
I think the 2022 Australian Open, because that's when we'll have the combination of the rules allowing it and people being comfortable with it. I, I think possibly at the U.S. Open this year, there will be the allowance for fuller, almost full crowds, but not yet quite the logistics and comfort level to make it so. Yeah, that's, that sounds right. Go ahead, Carl. From Eric Johnson on Twitter, edited by Petter, uh, what is your most favorite stat, tennis-related or otherwise? And we're talking here about a metric, not a specific fact. This is going to be a great plug because I, I've been—I wrote a blog post last night about yellow, which is year elo. Um, the idea that we we just look at short-term performances or streaks or seasons by a player. Uh, I've been thinking about this for a super long time and finally crunched the numbers last night. And I've got a lot more work to do, but I, I really like this idea as an alternative to the the races. So if you haven't checked out that blog post, I suggest that you do. I've, I'm sure there's some recency bias there, but I I like that stat right now. Um, next up, will a greater or smaller share of matches be played on clay a decade from now? <laughs> Questions I wrote, I have trouble answering. I, I wrote them because I, I really don't know the answer and wanted wanted Jeff's. I'm going to guess smaller just because of a gradual shift towards the convenience and flexibility of hard courts, but I don't think it'll be a big difference. Yeah, I don't think it'll be a big difference either. Um, it's so tough to predict how the overall tour structure is going to change, but um, I'll give you the next one too, Carl. Who will have the better career, Phillies Auge Ali Asim or Denis Shapovalov? I'm going to go with FAA. As, as I like to call them, because I have terrible pronunciation of names. And I, I say so not with great confidence, but mostly just because of uh, Shapovalov looking like he's plateaued to some extent at an older age. So, oh, do you want to answer too? No, go ahead. I'll, I'll jump in if I, if I feel the need, but we got to keep the train rolling here. We've got 96 more to go. 96 more to go. From Jeff McFarland, what would your first piece of advice be for someone interested in sports analytics, preferably tennis, but who is not confident in their math and or programming skills? The first piece is read more. Um, read more analytics, read more like pop economics, like Freakonomics kind of stuff. Just get practice thinking in these terms. And my 1A piece of advice is get some programming skills. They don't have to be super advanced. It could just be learning to use Excel better. You don't need a lot of math, but you do need some skills for data manipulation. You can't get very far without that, but it's not super hard. Uh, I think it's easier than a lot of people think to get to a, a place where you can do useful work just in Excel or with some basic Python or something. So two for one, I guess. Um, Sticking with analytics, next question, is there a reason, I put good in parentheses, is there a good reason why women's tennis seems to get less analytical attention than men's tennis? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not good that there is less statistically available about women's tennis. Jeff Sackman, who's hosting the show, has done more than, than all, just about anyone to address that, especially historically uh, with, with some of his work this year in, in, in putting in the um the stats from older seasons otherwise i guess because men's tennis has more stats available and frameworks are built around them maybe they're harder to fit around women's tennis like the serve dominance being less uh net game being less important but but i think the 
uh, structural sexism that probably explains why there's fewer stats available for women's tennis and probably explains somewhat why there's less interest among the largely male uh, group of people analyzing sports is is the biggest issue. Yeah, if there's a good reason, it's the it's the serve dominance. I'm, I'm not sure that's much of a reason, but the, the what the match stats are are so built around aces and serve winning percentages, and that's just not as important in women's tennis. In women's tennis is more about the return and the rally. Um, fewer tie breaks, which are easy and fun to analyze. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a great reason, but if there is stru- a structural reason that isn't sexist, I guess that's what it is. Um, Carl, I'll give you the next one. Would a more mentally balanced or less perfectionist John McEnroe have won more Grand Slam singles titles than he actually did? It's so hard to know what you lose when you gain a supposed asset like mental balance. And and McEnroe at times played best when he seemed most tortured. So I'm not going to say yes to this. This is phrased yes or no, not would he have won fewer Maybe he would have had a longer career. Maybe he would have won uh, more titles overall. I'm going to ask you this next one from Jeff McFarland. Would you expand the grass court season? And if yes, for how many weeks, I guess, how many weeks would you extend it by? And what would you replace? What What would you lose from the calendar? I like it now. I like the recent addition of one more week, but I don't want to add much more. One thing I've discovered researching women's tennis history is there used to be a lot more grass court tennis. I mean, as as everybody probably knows, um, and especially in the UK, the season was really long. And what that meant was there was a lot of rain delays. A lot of tournaments didn't get finished. A lot of tournaments had like two or three matches in a day. There's just not that many places where you have grass courts and you have the weather to support grass court tennis for more than about four days out of the year, like you have in the British Isles. So... I mean, grass court tennis is cool, but I'm, I'm happy with it as a, uh, it's with its current level of sideshow. So next question, another one from Jeff McFarland. Which of these players will be the first to win a Grand Slam? And he lists, he, he says Arena Sabalenka is, is presumed given because he knows who he's talking to. And he also uh, writes off Veronica Kudermetova because he has this weird Kudermetova thing. So his list to choose from is Belinda Benchish, Jennifer Brady, Coco Goff, Karolina Pliskova, Maria Sakkari, Alina Svitolina, Clara Towson. Diana Estremska or none of the the above? What do you think? Definitely not none, because that's quite a list. Uh, I, I think Brady, because of the combination of being old enough where it could be coming soon and having some great recent results, but young enough that presumably her peak is ahead of her, whereas for Svitolina and Pliskova, their, their peaks might be behind them. Yeah, I don't... I, I, I agree with the... The reasoning there is just it's I feel like for any one of those women, the the current prediction probably is closer to zero than it is to one. When you add them up, you end up with something closer to one or above one. But it's that's a tough list to pick from. I mean, Towson probably someday, maybe, but she's 18. We don't really know what we're looking at there. Um, This is one of those questions we could talk about for 10 minutes. So I'm going to resist the urge and fire the next one back at Carl. In what year will the next major women's singles title be won by a French woman? French woman. Uh, there, there have been some pretty good ones recently. So, twenty thirty seven. So, someone we don't even know about yet. That's my guess. Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at the list before we started recording, and it's not. Uh, there's no real contenders in the pipeline. So. Okay, 10 down, 90 to go. We're already well behind schedule. Number 11, who's the best coach working today? 
Mm, working. I mean, you know, Tony Nadal, Judy Murray, Richard Williams. I, I guess Judy Murray's still working, so I'll, I'll, I'll say her. Okay. Um, I, I, I can't pick against Vim Facet. He just has, has been a, a role for too many players having, having career best results. Um, this one is from a, someone we haven't named yet from Twitter, Hawk of GP, uh, which surely stands for something. I don't know what it is. He asks, what would have been your solution for pandemic rankings, both ATB and WTA, in a hypothetical scenario where the powers that be came to you for a solution? <laughs> uh, I guess mo most true but least likely would be to use the ELO from uh, Tennis Abstract, which itself had to figure out what to do about the pandemic. Maybe more realistic would be either to wait uh, more recent results more heavily, but still count those older results when players didn't replay the event or use something like protected rankings. So players could still make it into events, but wouldn't have the same um, privileges when they did. Yeah, there's a big confusion whenever people talk about rankings and it's easy to elide. And that's the difference between rankings for the purposes of of just ranking players and having something to talk about and the purpose of entry into tournaments. And something like what the tours are doing now is really important for entry into tournaments because you have to be fair about that. But in terms of a public-facing ranking system for something to argue about over a beer, then I don't get why they don't make it simpler or just go full-on with the race or just say, you know, screw it. Yeah, we missed a bunch of tournaments, but the rankings are going to be what they're going to be. I mean, the baseball season was, what, 60 games last year? And MLB didn't decide to take stats from an extra 100 games from 2019 just so they could have a 162-game season in the stat lines. Like, the who's number one might not quite make sense. It might not be Novak Djokovic. It might not be – it won't be Ashley Barty. But I, I don't understand why – well, I kind of understand. But I wish they would have gone with something more straightforward and just said, this is going to be a weird year. The year-end rankings might reflect that. So next question. What do Roger Federer's 23 career losses from match point up tell us about him? I feel like I've been asked more questions so far. So I'm going to push this one back to you beyond saying the, the easy answer of he, which I think you ended your recent blog post about this of, uh, hell, he's reached match point really often. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I tend to brush off the match point losses and earning a lot of break points that aren't converted for that exact reason. And the context for this question, which I think I did on a recent expected points, is Federer has way more match point up losses than Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray combined. Uh, and part of that's just because when you are when you're more serve dominated, when there's more tie breaks, when there's more like seven five six four sets. Uh, you're going to end up with more match points. Like just that's what happens if you have deciding tie breaks. And I'm guessing Federer's had a lot more of those than the other guys have. I, I don't know. I haven't checked it, but that, that's part of it. I'm not sure. I mean, it, it, there does seem to be this, there's at least a sense that Federer chokes sometimes, um, which is a little bit tough to reconcile with his career records and all of his, his great wins. But I, I guess I, I tend to ignore stuff like that. I don't think it tells us a lot about him, except maybe a little bit about the game style. So next question. This is from uh, Tristan Young on Twitter. He says, it's a simple question. Golubic backhand or Suarez Navarro backhand? Which do you prefer? 
Well, I'm definitely putting this back to you after I answer. I'm going to say what I think you won't, Suarez Navarro, because she had a much better career. And so that suggests to me that her beautiful backhand was also better. It's probably better. And we'll disagree about that. I will go with the Gollywich backhand, as you predicted. I, I just, I love that shot so much. It's it's like, it, it, she's so slight is the thing that's so remarkable to me. And it's such, you have to have so much power and so much strength to hit that shot. And if you... If you saw her on the street, I'm not sure you'd even think she was a professional athlete, but she hits the Gasquet backhand, and she hits it well. I mean, at least often not well enough to be in the top 100 most of the time, but it's a remarkable shot. Uh, Next question. Since the shot clock doesn't work to speed up matches, is there any way to make that happen? Public pressure. (laughs) Um, Fans not watching as much. I mean, I think there could be long-term trends and pressures like that. And then you could have short-term trends like certain players who play at a really fast pace and show that that can be an advantage, especially against players that aren't used to that, like Curios. Um, but I, I'm not... I mean, the obvious thing is make the umpire enforce the rules, but the we've seen tennis basically has spoken on that, at least for now. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you the next one from Jeff McFarlane. Yep. If you could change any tennis rule, whether a tournament rule, for example, no wild cards, or a game rule, for example, no lets, what will you change and why? Um, well, I, I would lean towards no wild cards, given that example, although we do have a question about that coming along somewhere down the pike. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Like, I... I would love to go back to all advantage sets. I mean, I don't think it's ever going to happen and it would make for some really, really long matches, but I love looking at the historical results and seeing these matches like 14, 12, 13, 11 or something like that. Maybe just do that for finals. I think that would be super fun to suspend the tie break sometimes. Uh, Next question. In 10 years, will there be more or fewer players in the singles top 100s who went to college? Yeah, I guess this is assuming the same answer for men and women or combining and, and saying total. Uh, because the trend has been up recently, I'm going to guess regression to the mean, partly because there's also been a shift away from the U.S. in general. And I know a lot of players from outside the U.S. play college tennis, but uh, I still think that that could have an effect as well. Yeah, that seems that's, that, that seems plausible to me. I can really see that one going either way. Um like with the tours getting older, it makes more sense to go to college. But if you look at who the top prospects are now, I mean, there's so many good names who are 18, 19 years old, and that doesn't really work with going to college. So next question, who is the next non-Rafael Nadal man to win Roland Garros? Oof. I mean, it's probably a boring answer of Djokovic or team. Um so I'll say that it probably is one of them, but because we're having fun here, I'm going to say Schwartzman. How about you? I want to say Yannick Sinner, but that's probably a little too far down the road. Um, yeah, I mean, I I could see Zverev. I don't want it to be Zverev, but I'll, I'll put Zverev in the mix. Um, but yeah, I mean, Djokovic and team are the smart answers. Djokovic is probably the, the, the smartest answer. So next question, who will be the first man born in the 2000s to win a slam? I, I, I'm i going to choose from someone you just named, Sinner. How about you? Yeah, Sinner's my pick. I mean, I, I, I would like to see Auge Ali Asim make a big leap and suddenly become the favorite for that, that choice again, but I, I'm going Sinner. So while we're talking slams, next question, will Djokovic win number 20 or maybe number 21? 
Yes, yes. You? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so speaking of 20, that's 20 questions down. We think Novak Djokovic is going to do even better than that. So on that note, question 21, who is the no, best No, I'm asking regular... this one to you, Jeff. Oh. Who's the best regular okay, tour? I'm, I'm still, I feel like I've been asked first 14 or 15 so far. Who's the best regular Please. tour chair umpire? Maria Chichak, I think. Uh, Julie Shendlia has got to be a close second. Um, Eva Azdaraki is in the mix, although she hasn't been on tour as much since she now has a kid. Uh, there's a theme there that I named all women, and I do get the sense that the best women are, whether it's just a historical accident or maybe they have fewer opportunities for leadership type of roles in the countries they come from. I mean, not Shendlia from Norway, but... Um, could be a factor. I think that's an interesting question that would merit a longer conversation than we'll give it right now. But those are my picks. And speaking of chair umpires, this is great. These are randomly shuffled, but there are nice little groupings of questions in this list. So number 22, this is from Jeff McFarland. What role will the chair umpire serve in tennis five years from now? I think pretty similar in overall importance. Two possible changes. One, if there's more automated line calling, then there won't be as much about administering challenges or overrules. Uh, and then I think it's quite likely we'll see, at least at some events, more use of uh, video replay for reviewing um, other kinds of calls and line calls. And in that case, chair umpires will probably play a bigger role. Like foot faults? Yeah, exactly. Okay, I, I know you want me to answer the next one, so fire away. <laughs> Which woman who has never played professional tennis would be most successful if she took it up today full time? I love this question. This is so great. Um, I'm saying Michaela Schifrin, but if it, it's a question where the spirit and the technical answer are different. Um, in the spirit of the question, I think it's Schifrin. But if, you, if technically, like if she took it up today full time, I'd want someone who is really young. So who is the best like 15 year old who's recognizable as a future star athlete? I don't know who that is. I don't follow enough, enough other sports to know that. But uh, I mean, whoever the, the teenage version of Michaela Schifrin is, I guess, uh, or maybe a biathlete. That would be my second choice. Maybe, um, maybe Tyrell Eckhoff, although she's too old now. Um, next question. Career peak ranking for Coco Goff. Mm, one in doubles, three in singles. One in doubles. I love it. See, this is why we have you on the podcast, Carl. <laughs> um, I was going to say four or five in singles, and that's more just like it's not saying she can't be number one. It's just weighted average. So many things could happen. She's so young. Next question. Will Andy Murray win another ATP title? No, but maybe a challenger. I've got to get past Ilya Marchenko first. That's a tough ask. Um, By the way, while we're talking doubles, it's phrased, will Murray win another ATP title? And I do think Jamie Murray will. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, I did write that. That was slop. I mean, Kamau Murray could win one as a coach. <laughs> Absolutely. Is, did Samantha Murray retire? I think she did. But we might get another another Murray coming down. Um, I'm, I want to ask this next one because yeah. you recently have interviewed more people related to tennis, even if this is what he means. From Jeff McFarland, what's the key to conducting a good tennis interview? It feels like a loaded question because you're assuming that I conduct good tennis interviews, and I'm not sure that I really know how to do that. But um, my model for interviewing in general is Tyler Cohen, the economist who has his own podcast conversations with Tyler. Um, and the two things that he does that blow me away. One is that he talks so little. He asks really good questions, but then he just shuts up and lets his guests talk, which even if you're listening to my podcast or Carl's podcast and you have chosen to, li to listen to us, 
if you listen to us interviewing guests, you want to hear from the guests. You don't want to hear my opinion about these questions, which is a bit ironic since I'm giving my opinion about a lot of these questions in this episode. But um, the first part, yeah, is shutting up and letting the guests talk. And the second part is preparation. And like, there's so many people in the media don't have the time to really prepare for interviews. That's just the nature of the job. But I do. So if I'm going to bring, you know, Julie DeCaro on my show like I did last week and she has a new book coming out, I'm reading that whole book. I'm checking out her post on Deadspin. I'm looking at some of the videos she talks about. Um, I'm going to do a fair amount of work. And that means that we can go beyond just asking her, so what led you to write this book? Which is answered in the book and answered in every other interview and basically just figuring out a way to get them to talk about things that go one step further or aren't things they're answering in other interviews. That's what I'm trying to do anyway. Um, next question. Favorite WTA player to watch? Shea And I'm glad. Oh, nice. Shea Sue. I was, I, was, I was going to say, I'm glad we're asking Carl this because I could definitely go on for 30 minutes listing, you know, my top 55 WTA players to watch. So that's a, that's a great pick. Um, Next question. This is from Petter. In your opinion, what would be the best tweaks for the ATP ranking to make it better, fairer, or statistically more sound? I'm going to pass this one to you. Okay. Um, well, it, it depends if you are willing to take a full overhaul. If you do a full overhaul, then you know do ELO. I've suggested in the past to ha to separate the. Oh, I said this already today. Separate the public facing rankings from entry rankings um and for entry rankings you could have something with a surface component using a surface elo so you could get more for instance clay court specialists into clay court events um if you're not willing to go full elo i'd bring back some modest version of bonus points for for like upsets like lorenzo musetti beating a top 10 player yesterday in acapulco that's sort of like a poor man's way of getting the benefits of ELO without having the somewhat opaque formula. So a, a lot of fans like that from back in the days when bonus points were part of the system. So I think that would that would be a step in the right direction that people would understand. Uh, next question. This is from Ian Hoffman on Twitter. He, I, he says this is a weird one. He's always wondered, do pro tennis players have one arm that is markedly more muscular than the other? What do you think, Carl? I think that players with one-handed backhands might. Otherwise, I wouldn't really expect them to. And as you provided in our outline, there's reason to think that the musculature of the arms are not is not particularly important to performance. It might be important to how players look in their sponsor shirts. Um, from Petter, choose one. Indian Wells title or Grand Slam runner-up? Grand Slam runner-up. I don't think it's close. Are you with me there? Absolutely. Yeah. Petter also asked, this didn't quite make the cut, but I'll ask it anyway. Wimbledon title or Olympic gold medal? See, that one, I think I'm supposed to say to a tennis audience, Wimbledon title. I'm going to go with Olympic gold because for the rest of your life, that will matter more to more people. And it's a rarer achievement. Is it a rarer achievement? Well, in tennis, it's a rarer achievement, but there's hundreds of In tennis, of it's gold. a rarer achievement. That's what I mean. Yeah, I was thinking it is a trickier question than it sounds because Wimbledon is the obvious answer. But I was thinking if you're especially if you're from a small country that's not tennis mad, like it, if you're Monica Puig, is it is it better for you and the rest of your life to have a gold medal than a Wimbledon title? And I think maybe the answer is yes. Yeah, exactly. So, OK, 30 questions down, 70 to go. Number 31. What will Venus Williams do post retirement? 
I am almost sure she'll continue with her own businesses that have, from all reports, been pretty successful. Um, I hope she stays involved in tennis. Can't really see her coaching. I think she could be a great commentator if she she chooses to open up more about other people's matches than about her own. And that does all presuppose she retires at some point. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Next question. Why are most tournament websites, at least the non-slams, worthless, at least for the non-attending or ticket-buying fan? You know, I think it's what you get when you have, you know, different operations uh, bodies for events that happen once a year and, um, you know, are not taking advantage of kind of the scale uh, that you would get from from just having everything be unified. Um, you have, you know, it's you see it on site in all sorts of ways that that things would run more smoothly if it was like a full time operation to host a tennis tournament. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I spend my my days mired in college baseball websites, and most of them are standardized from one provider. And the ones that are standardized are, I won't say great, they're pretty good, they're solid. The ones that aren't standardized are freaking mess because people are reinventing the wheel over and over again and not doing a very good job at it. So I think it's a similar problem. Um, I'm going to ask you this one. Will Federer win another ATP title? I think he will. Um, A a few years ago, he was doing this sort of semi-retirement tour where he was playing all these 250s that he normally didn't play. And I think we're going to see more of that. And he's going to win Istanbul or something. Maybe this, maybe next year. I don't know. He'll, he'll win another, or he'll, he'll go win in, um, in Hala or something. Um, and similar to the Venus question, what will Federer do post-retirement? I think he will be quite involved in tennis. Uh, he'll, whatever Labor Cup or it's, it's like umbrella organization is, he'll be involved in that. Uh, I think he'll be quite involved with this foundation. And he's also talked about wanting to write books. I'm sure if he wants to do a podcast with Bruce Springsteen, he can. And there's a lot of sports that he hasn't played during his tennis career because of risk of injury that I'm sure he'd love to play. So maybe we'll see him on the racket lawn circuit. Wow, that's a that's a, that's a lot more stuff than I expected from that answer. That's You actually know a lot more about Federer than I do. I did not know he expressed interest in some of those things. Um, so I'd love well, to see I may it. have I'd... made some of that up. We'll see. What? The racket <laughs> lawn part, I figure you did make up. Um, okay, this is one of your questions, but I want to give it back to you. What's a matchup that never happened? That, uh, and this is of retired players. We've got a similar question coming down the pike for current players. But what's a matchup that never happened that you'd most like to see? Mm. Uh, I, I guess maybe it's so boring to say this, but Laver and Federer would be interesting. I, I would really just love to see Laver play against a lot of different players, partly because there isn't enough video out there of Laver. Among more recent ones, you know, there's been a lot of like, oh, what if you serve and volleyed Rafa all the time? So like Sampras Rafa could be interesting. I'm going with Tipserovich Sanga because I always that I always loved that one because they were both in the top ten for a long time, but they never played each other. I, I don't think they ever ended up playing each other for years. They hadn't. Um, in 2050, what will be the all-time Slam singles title record for men? 22. And that'll be Djokovic's 22. Uh, they'll be tied three ways. So Djokovic, Nadal, and Sinner? That's, that was the joke I was going to make. Thank you for doing it. From Eric Johnson on Twitter, what's your most favorite stat 
tennis related or otherwise. And this time we are talking about a specific fact, not a metric. I have so many and I, I feel like I get a new one every week. And I had, I, I had an answer for this that has escaped my mind, but I love that Tip Saravich song thing that they'd never played. Um, I also love the, the streak of, of consecutive matches played breaking serve at least once. And it's frustrating because we don't know the exact answer, but Leighton Hewitt had 200 something and we don't know the exact number because there was a Davis cup dead rubber in there that we don't know whether he broke serve or not. So it's, I forget the exact numbers, but it's like 190 or 232. But that's, I think that might be my favorite, but I mean, ask me again in a few days and I'll probably have a new one. Oh, this is a great question. This is probably my favorite question out of all 100 from Jason Prim on Twitter. He says, as fans, do you two hold any beliefs about tennis that the numbers and statistics disprove? I mean, this, this could be episode 101 right here, but let's try to do it. Or 101 through forever. I, yeah, I, I, thought, I saw this yesterday. I've thought about it on and off. I, I hope that I don't have any anymore. I certainly had some that then got disproved and I moved on. I mean, one was I love my pet stat of ratio of return points one to opponent return points one, but it turns out it's not as correlated with, with outcome or, or much of anything else as just percentage of points one. So I guess that threw me off. Um, that's pretty obscure. Uh, I don't know. I there, there are things that haven't been tested yet, so I'm sure they're wrong, but I, I don't know yet that they're wrong. And then, I mean, I think that just goes... That's true of my own game, for instance. Like there are things I think about how I play that are probably all wrong, but I don't have the kinds of stats that the pros do. Do you have a better answer on this one? I don't have a better answer. Uh, I do have one one example of something I don't that the numbers say that I don't agree with, which is that my my Elo algorithm, which has been you know tweaked and tweaked and tweaked and tweaked. It says that Djokovic is the favorite at Roland Garros, not Rafael Nadal. There's no way that's true. I just, I, I refuse to believe that. I'm pretty sure it is wrong. Uh, but I mean, maybe that's not in the spirit of the thing. There's some, there's some momentum or streakiness issues that I've never been able to find really any evidence of, or I've only been able to find very, very minor evidence of that. I can't really shake the idea that it's, it's a real thing. Like the fact that, you know, if a player wins a title, he's going to come back with a better chance of winning the next event than he would be otherwise. Um, I mean, I think I make some adjustments for that, but even, even when I'm doing like these podcasts, I think I still say things that go against what the numbers strictly would say. It's really tough to, to cast aside those, uh, those beliefs. And I, I think I do still partly believe them. Um, this is another one from Petter. What would have been different in the tennis world had Federer converted those Wimbledon championship points in 2019? Yeah, I thought about this one too. I think that certainly just the result of Federer having one more slam title and Djokovic one fewer would have mattered, of course, for the the chase for the, the record all time, which is ongoing. I don't think it would have had major ripple effects because both guys have suffered big losses or had big wins and not had that play out into the next event. So, you know, they both seem to to move on very quickly for better or for worse. So I, I don't think like suddenly Federer would have won the U.S. Open um, or that, uh, you know, Djokovic would have fallen apart afterwards. Yeah, I think it's too late in their career for any one big event to have a, a big impact. I, I'm, I'm willing to believe the theory that 
you know, that famous Eugenie-Matthew-Davis Cup match might have negatively affected Matthew's entire career. I'm willing to buy that, but that only works if the players are still developing as players. It doesn't work for guys in their 30s. Let me give you this one. Will prize money increase faster than inflation over the next decade? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's going to be true in any field, sports or otherwise, that is star-driven. I think that's the way the economy is going in general. And it's how tennis has been going for a long time. And even losing the big four, uh, I think that's that's what we're going to see in tennis. And you have to ask me the next one, too, since this is specifically for me. All right, we're 40 down, 60 to go. From Amir B on Twitter, have you considered using deep learning for charting matches on the match charting project, which is something wonderful on Tennis Abstract? I have considered it, um, and it is, it's not the first time people have suggested it. It's an easy thing to suggest. It's not an easy thing to execute. Um, it's, I mean, it's a whole new domain that I know some about, but not very much. I think I don't want to speak specifically about Amir, but a lot of people have uh, are over optimistic about what deep learning can do or how easily you can do it. It's not like you can just upload a tennis video to TensorFlow on Google and bam, you have a match chart. It's an enormously complicated problem. I've thought a lot about how you'd solve it, even automating part of the process. Uh, Amir mentioned the possible benefits of being able, being able to feed an algorithm all the free challenger video that's out there. And frankly, a lot of that challenger video is hard to chart for a human. Um, the camera angles will miss players' return positions. So it's tough enough for a human to extrapolate what type of shots a player is hitting when they're off camera. I, I don't think we have any hope of teaching a computer how to do that, at least without a ton of work going beyond the already pretty substantial amount of work that's gone into the match charting project already. And I mean, if we're talking about sheer hours invested, I mean, I don't want to know how many hours I've put into this thing, but most of those hours are spent just watching tennis, which is fun. So, I mean, it's not something I'd like to automate out of my life. <laughs> my goal is not to remove the tennis watching from my life. I don't, I don't mind uh, charting matches while I do it at the same time. So number 42, in what year will the next man win his 10th slam title? So outside the big three, basically, who's the next 10 slam winner? Well, not who, but, but when. I know, but, <laughs> but when, when does it happen? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's anyone active. So I think, uh, I mean, 2042? So, yeah, I mean, it, it's someone we haven't seen yet. It's, it, it is interesting looking back at the sort of Edberg-Becker era, the pre-Sampras era, how many great players there were who didn't get to 10 slams. I mean, how historically rare it is for players to do that. Um, next question, which is definitely for Carl. This is from Pietro Gossio on Twitter. This is something you've written about. Are two first serves a good idea? So at first I read this question and thought he meant, should we change the rules so you get two first <laughs> serves and then a second serve? Um, I'd be more inclined to go to one serve than to three. But uh, it, really, like, it really depends. If you look at the numbers for—I've uh, only looked at this for the men, but I think there are very few men who would benefit, assuming that they would— win at the same rate by hitting their same kind of serve on second serve. Uh, what would their effect be on them mentally of clustering a bunch of double faults? What effect on their opponent of, of having to guess, which we do see sometimes with like Bublik and, and Kyrgios. All that could change it, but in general it looks like it's not nearly as good of an idea as we hear commentators tout it to be. Yeah, and I think uh, what is a good idea is a little more variation. So you'll see some younger players hitting big first serve sometimes. And it's not that the hitting a big first serve isn't the good move, but varying the second serve is a, 
at least potentially a good move. It seems like that that has more benefit than just totally changing the the, the way you approach second serves. Uh, this next question from Jeff McFarland. We kind of talked about it several episodes ago when we talked about Gordon Forbes' book, Handful of Summers. Which current player on each side, men's and women's, would write the most insightful autobiography? And he he stipulates we cannot answer Gilles Simon because he's been reading Gilles Simon's book in French and he may never read again. Uh, I'm going to start trying to answer these questions more quickly with like underexplained answers so we can get, get back on track. So... You can make of this what you will, but I'll say Andy Murray and Andrea Pekovic. Ah, uh, yeah, Pekovic is a good one. Uh, I'm going to say Monica Nicolescu instead of Petkovic, but um, I'd like to read Petkovic's book too. And yeah, I, I the problem with this is I I, I want to know who would write a who would choose to write an open book. I like who would choose to you know really tell it like it is, and I'm not sure Murray would, even though Murray is probably more of an open book than say Nadal or Federer, but. Um, yeah, we should, we should try to keep these a little more brief or else my, my son will spend all day and all night at daycare today. Um, next question. Will Nick Kyrgios ever crack the top 10? No. Yeah, I don't think so either. Why didn't Richard Gasquet become a top five player? Ooh, I, to give one reason, bad timing, just so many players who happen to be better, but wouldn't have been at other times in history. Yeah, and, he, and the back end is so beautiful that it's easy to ignore. He doesn't have huge weapons otherwise, and it's tough to win without them unless you're really a clay court grinder, which he isn't quite. Um, variation on something we heard earlier, we asked earlier, what head-to-head are you most looking forward to seeing for the first time? So this is something among active players. So I don't know by heart which ones haven't happened, but the type that I'm most excited about is the type that's made possible by having Venus, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, to a lesser extent Nadal and Djokovic playing at such later ages. And one of the things Federer has said is how cool it was for him to play players he had grown up watching when he was young. So I think getting to see the younger players uh, play those players while they're still quite good. Uh, because they're playing at, at ages that are unusual is is what's most exciting. I'm ready to move on. Osaka Sviantek, make it happen. Make it happen 27 times. I cannot <laughs> wait to see that match. Uh, next question. Who's the current player you'd most like to hear as a commentator? Mm, I mean, some of them we have heard on and off. So, like, I, we have a pretty good idea that Curios could be good, Andy Murray. Uh, I, I still... I know I said this already, but I kind of have in my head that if Venus Williams really tells us what she sees on the tennis court, um, maybe, maybe she's already done it and I haven't heard it, that she'd be great. It's One thing that makes this question tricky is that all the players that come to mind for me are not native English speakers. And of course, everyone on, on tour in the tennis world, they speak pretty good English um, or they might even speak English pretty well. But I feel like when you're speaking a second language, you don't have the same command of, of subtle points and you're more likely to fall into cliches. So I would, again, I'll mention Nicolescu. I would love to hear Nicolescu commentate matches, but I'm not sure whether we would get in English the same quality of Nicolescu commentary as we would get in Romanian. So, I mean, I guess in a hypothetical world, I would love to understand Romanian and have Monica Nicolescu commentate for me, but that's a lot of ifs. On that note, Gilles Simone would be pretty good. In Romanian? Any, any... Yes, especially Romanian. Jeff, which retired player would have the best chance of coming back and winning a title? This is another like spirit versus literal question, and I shouldn't nitpick because I think I wrote this one myself. 
Um, I want to say Elena Dementieva. It probably would have been more true five years ago than it is now. Uh, she's getting a little too old to come back. Um, technically, I would have to say Wozniacki. I mean, she's still young enough to be a tour regular. She hasn't been off for that long. David Ferrer is kind of in the same category, but let's say Elena Dementieva. Um, last question of the first half. Are underarm serves going to become a more common tactic? Mm. Maybe it's slightly more. I mean, I think we're near peak. Like, I don't think there's that much more to, to juice to get out of it. And even players who who stand way far back are not getting are not getting like destroyed by the tactic. Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, it, I have a hard time seeing it becoming much more mainstream. So that wraps up the first half. We're gonna have to hit the gas a little bit here, but Carl, I think the next one is directed at me. Yeah, and I had trouble phrasing this, but let me try to rephrase it. Basically, what premium would you pay if any, if if there were a single streaming service that covered all the tennis you wanted to watch, rather than having to cobble it together from lots of different sources and f- figure out who's carrying what, if anyone? It's tough. I, I I really like this question, and I'm going to continue thinking about it. I don't think I'd pay a premium. I'm a little bit of a weird tennis watcher because I don't watch a lot of tennis live. Um, I'm not afraid to to get pirated videos in somewhat shady, illegal ways. So, for instance, I might watch a couple Davis Cup matches now and then, but I, I've i only once subscribed to the Davis Cup stream. Uh, the slams are tricky. Uh, I mean, I, I would pay a premium for, like, a, a guaranteed way of watching slams. I get that in with Eurosport in Europe, but it's kind of annoying to have to re-up for a month four times a year. It's, it's tough. I mean... I, I guess I would pay a small premium, but not not much of a premium just for convenience. Because I mean, it's such a it's such an integral part of my life watching tennis that I'm I'm fine putting the work in. I'm going to end up putting the work in some way or other to watch what I want to watch. Um, next question: Who will be the next man to win his first Slam? Medvedev. Yeah, it seems like it's it's tough to pick anybody else unless somebody else comes through with the French, which is also pretty tough to see. Uh, will the ATP and WTA merge in the next decade? I don't think so anymore. I think if I answered this about a year ago, I would have been more bullish. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think they've, and part of it's just inertia. They've been separate for 50 years and maybe they should merge. Um, that's a different question, but, uh, they might work together more, maybe, but yeah, it would be a big step to fully merge. Favorite ATP player to watch? Um, uh, it's hard to watch him these days at tour level, but Dustin Brown, um, if I had to choose someone more like in the top 50, probably Schwartzman, uh, not even because I love his game the most, but because I love what he's, he's done with it. Yeah. Schwartzman is a hero, uh, and fun to watch. I, I would have to pick the clay quarters. I mean, I, I, I guess Pablo Cuevas is kind of on the way down and out these days, but I, I've always loved watching Cuevas. Um, next one, should the tours embrace team tennis? I'm, I'm pretty on the record as yes on this one and have answered a couple in a row, so you go. I don't think so. I think that there's, there's a role for Labor Cup, maybe a slightly larger role for things like Labor Cup, but I think team tennis is a distraction. Um, it, the move in general seems to be very, very gradually toward unifying everything. And as the tours and the slams work together more, I think tour ten- I mean, team tennis will be edged out. And I think that's okay. Um, 
this is something that could probably be a whole other episode, but I wonder if team tennis should function a little more explicitly like minor league baseball, like something for college players to do in the summer if they don't want to travel abroad to play, uh, not as something to showcase, you know, Andy Roddick for a comeback match in Dallas or whatever happens now. Um, next question. In what year will the next major men's singles title be won by an American? Speaking of Andy Roddick. 2039. So you, all the current Americans are not going to win a slam. Not until they're in their 40s. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see 43-year-old. Math is probably wrong. Brandon Nakashima win a slam. Um Okay, next question. Even if we accept that smaller events need wild cards for promotional purposes, should big events like slams or 1000s, say, be limited to a smaller number of wild cards or none with uh, restrictions like age or ranking? I think a smaller number. And I do like the idea of restrictions, although I think either you need to carve out a lot of possibilities or you would need to um, just have one or two completely unrestricted. Like, for instance... You know, if somebody who's been retired for a year or two wants to come back, then maybe their peak career rankings could be valid. Um, I, I think that there can be a purpose for them, but that there are way too many of them now, and it's it's often abused. Yeah, I mean, and I, my goal would be curbing that abuse. So I don't. Uh, I also would be skeptical about adding a bunch of new rules because of all the different scenarios you'd have to cover. Um, but I think eight wild cards for the slams or. Do does Miami have eight? I'm not sure how many they have. I don't think they used them all this year, but uh, that's too many. Uh, next question, which is just a factual one, and I looked up, so I'll just give the answer. This is from Megan Fernandez on Twitter, who asks, how many slams have each of the big three won without having to play one of the other two? And the answer is, Novak has won five, Rafa has won six, and Federer has won 14. And part of that's just the, the timeline overlap, because Federer won many of his slams before Nadal was really a factor off of clay before Djokovic was a factor at all. So I'm not sure exactly what to read into that quite into that answer because I know some people will want to read a lot into it. But, um, but Carl, I'll ask a follow-up there. Do you think there's, is there something to be learned from knowing that? I think both of us are, tend to prefer more complete stats. So you've done ones on like the overall strength of the field that, or the or of the players they had to play. That's more meaningful to me than this sort of specific thing. Like if Ed didn't have to play either of them and had to play a bunch of nobodies, that's very different than if he had to play two top five players, uh, you know, in the semis and final. Yep. So next question, who has the best net game amongst women singles players? Barty. Yeah. I, I would go Barty too. I mean, Mukova's in the conversation. There's some other good ones, but I feel like Barty's the final answer. Um, next one, who's the best commentator on tennis? Oof. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to obviously stick with, with my terrible language skills, stick to English language. There's a, there's a bunch I really like, but uh, I'll say Darren Cahill for kind of most bang for buck he's he's good at economically delivering information and he would have gotten through these 100 questions by now <laughs> yeah we've only gone through 60 and we will need to continue to pick up the pace as has been our refrain next question who's one singles player who will eventually have a strong career as a double specialist well federer <laughs> eventually <laughs> uh 
Next question from Petter. What's your take on Hawkeye on clay? Is it good, bad, accurate enough? What is enough? I, I, I think it's good enough that it will eventually be adopted at a lot of tournaments, but probably not at the French Open and maybe at the, the Premier and Masters events. Um, by the way, just going back one, I think he said he wouldn't do it, but that a lot of people would enjoy watching Andy Murray stick around for a while playing doubles. Yeah, that would be fun too, especially with Jamie. Um, yeah, I think w w with Hawkeye on clay... It, Players accept that Hawkeye isn't perfect. Hawkeye might be a little less perfect on clay, but the value of Hawkeye is not entirely in its perfection. The value of Hawkeye is in its ability to settle arguments. And the answer doesn't always have to be right. The answer needs to be final. And that is as applicable on clay as it is elsewhere. Uh, this is a good I mean, you would, from, you would yeah. continue to have ball mark arguments, but again, you already have those. So you'd, maybe you'd have more, but uh, yeah, perfection is, is not on the table. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The next question from Jeff McFarland. Do you believe the length of the tennis season adversely affects general fan interest? I guess the implication is would a shorter season have more fan interest? I don't really... I mean, I think it does in the sense of there are a lot of tournaments that don't have much fan interest, but I think there are fans who just have in their head that the season is a lot shorter and that's what they're interested in and that you can sort of... The tennis season from a fan's point of view, can be whatever length and makeup you want it to be. You can just pay attention to Wimbledon if you live in Britain, and a lot of people do. So I, I don't think it has uh, a major impact, especially with all the ways that tennis does manage to get all of its best players together pretty often. Yeah, I mean, I think the schedule could be a little more coherent. That's something you've written about, and a lot of people think the Tour Finals could be moved up, for instance, right after the U.S. Open. Um, it's all tricky, but but yeah, I mean, for so many people, tennis is local. It, it's tough for us from our vantage point since we focus on it the whole year. But yeah, as you say, for some people, the tennis season is two weeks long for Wimbledon every year. Um, what's one thing that could improve TV broadcasts of tennis? Let me throw that one to you. I would pick a couple stats, um, not RPMs, um, not distance run, maybe like a marker indicating where players returned from or those graphics showing all of their hit points or something um, and show them more often. And I'm not sure who's going to decide what the most important stats are. Um, but for instance, some, some baseball teams are, are putting like wins above replacement on the scoreboard. There's, there's baseball camera stats that are on the TV screen almost constantly. And Tennis ought to have that too. They're not just sort of throwaways for dead to cover up dead air. They need to be part of the narrative um, more continuously. But the the problem is, I think if if someone from ESPN heard me say that, they would pick something, and then I would I would complain about it because it would be the wrong one. So I'm not sure it's a great answer, but it's an answer. Um, Petter has a good question. He asks the moon ball. Is it a good shot, at least in the right circumstances, or should it be avoided? Yeah, and he, he wanted an answer from a pro's perspective and from an amateur's perspective. He, he didn't know he had 36 more questions to go, though, so <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it brief. Uh, okay, so I only have the amateur's perspective. The question is worded in a slightly loaded way. Love you, Petter. Um, because he, even the good shot part is in special circumstances. I think it's just good shot, period. My view is any shot that's in your that, that you're able to hit 
if you can vary it as an amateur especially if you can give opponents different looks if you can change looks if your first plan in a match isn't working if you can stay in points where you're behind those are those are all good things so i mean i i think the fact that people hate the moon ball so much is a sign that it's probably underused yeah, that sounds right. I think it, it's tough in professional men's tennis because so many of the men are tall enough that they can hit an overhead from very deep um, and win the point from there. But outside of that very limited uh, population, I think it's I think that's exactly right. It's a good shot. It should be used more. Uh, will Kim Kleisters win another WTA title? No. Yeah, I'm not sure she's going to end up coming back at all. I'd love to see it, but it's been a long time. The pandemic has definitely not helped at all. This is one of your questions, but I want your answer, Carl. How many slams does Naomi Osaka retire with? Mm, nine. I could see her going much higher, but that's kind of my weighted average. Yeah, my weighted average is more like five or six. And this goes back to thinking about like the, the Becker-Edberg pre-Sampras era. Is There's so many good players, and Osaka looks dominant right now, but... I mean, one of these days, Arena Sabalenka is going to wake up and just start destroying everyone. And if she doesn't, then maybe Iga Fiontek will. And I can see Osaka going higher, but I can also see her playing well for another six or seven years, but not ending up with any more. So I guess my weighted average is lower. This is a really tough one. Petter is making us think hard for this. He wants us to predict the ATP top five at the end of 2021. And this is, since there's like seven versions of rankings floating around, he's talking about a version using 2021 results only. So what's your top five, Carl? Oof. Um, Djokovic, Medvedev, Nadal, uh, Team, and uh, Tsitsipas. Really boring. Okay. I'm going to go Djokovic, Nadal, Medvedev, Rublev Tsitsipas. Um, oh, Rublev is a good pick, yeah. Yeah, I have a tough time betting as Rublev right now uh, and a tough time betting on team, but of course team could turn that around on clay. Um, this is one of yours, Carl. How many top 100 men in 2040 will have one-handed backhands or top 100 women? Okay, I want you to answer it too, but I'll, I'll throw out numbers. Um, seven and one? I think there will be a few more men. I think that um, I think Sitsipas is going to end up being very good for a long time and very influential. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm going to take the over on seven, maybe not a lot more. And for women, I'm afraid it's going to be zero. We're very, very close to being zero now. With um, the only reason Suarez Navarro is still in the top 100 is because of the pandemic adjustments. And at the moment, anyway, Golubich and Gasparian are both outside the top 100. So once. Once those two retire, we could end up with zero. I mean, there's a couple of prospects who could turn the tide, but I'm afraid we're headed to a permanent zero on the women's side. Uh, this is a great question. I think this was yours, Carl. Will a slam ever move from the current four host cities? And if so, which will be the first to move to where and when? So that's like seven questions in two sentences, but say something interesting about one of them. <laughs> okay, but I asked it because I wanted your answer. Um, Australian Open... And it'll move somewhere to one of the other cities in Australia, uh, just because there's like sort of less historical uh, precedent that has to be in Melbourne and it'll be in the 2030s somewhere. Yeah, that's that's my pick, too. I mean, I, I think it's a very low probability that it happens even in the 2030s. But if one of them does move, that's it. I mean, Wimbledon and French Open aren't going anywhere. It's tough to see the U.S. Open moving out of New York, though it's conceivable that something would happen in New York that would move it to Indian Wells or something. But the Australian Open has been in Sydney. Uh, 
it's the it has the most extreme weather so it could either move on the calendar or move geographically so yeah that's the one that is is movable 30 questions to go uh will mixed doubles be part of all four slams in 2040 this was mine but i'll i'll say no why not I just think there are too many things working against it. I think it was a bad sign that it was um, on the chopping block when figuring out pandemic slam tennis. Isn't that just a bubble social isolation kind of move? Um, maybe, but like if it had felt more essential, then it would have been possible to make it happen or make it happen with a small field. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just concerned that it's been kind of a sideshow for a while and the the shortened scoring format, the the lack of top singles players. Um, I, I think it'll still be part of two or three, but that one of them will drop it. Okay. Um, what's the best place in the world to watch tennis? Uh, I I just put Wimbledon as a tournament generally among the ones I've been to. Very biased to, to the ones I've been to. Um, what about you? Mine is the now eliminated court 18 at the U.S. National Tennis Center. It's where I saw Elena Dementieva play a first round match in 1988 or not. Sorry, 1998. Um, And it is like the the back. Well, was the most back forgotten corner of the National Tennis Center in Flushing. And my favorite. I'm not even sure there were chairs. I love that place. Although the new the new stadium in that corner of the grounds is pretty cool, too. Um, You asked, Carl, will tennis remain part of the Olympics in 2044? Yeah, I'm I'm guessing no slightly. Uh just why? Because it's left before and tennis has had like a mixed relationship with it and players have been quick to skip it even in in recent years and the recent surge of like top players playing I think might be fleeting. Hmm. It never even would have occurred to me that that was a prediction you could make, but I mean I I I get the logic. Um, this next one is directed at me, but I'm talking, so I'll keep talking. This is from Kevin Nadumong. No, sorry, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Kevin Nadumakong Cruz on Twitter. Sorry, Kevin, that's horrible of me. How many? He asks how many times my singles forecast on Tennis Abstract for tournaments have actually been correct, and the way he phrases that makes it sound like he's been burned by betting on my picks. Um, so sorry, Kevin. I wouldn't recommend you do that. Um, but I did look at 2019 and for men's matches in 2019, my ma- main draw and qualifying, um, tour level match predictions were correct. 66% of the time challengers were more in the low 60%. That's not entirely the point. My goal is not to be right. My goal is to get the, the confidence levels right. And that's what Breer score and log loss measures are all about. And, I'm not as good at as betting odds. I mean, if I were, I'd be betting on tennis and not recording this podcast right now. Um, but I, it, it, they're pretty good. Just predicting tennis matches is really hard, as as you know, if you're betting on tennis and using my forecasts or not, losing money doing it. Um, next question, this is for Carl. Is Djokovic going to continue serving bigger, even away from the purportedly fast Australian open courts? Ooh, I mean... I don't know how we measure whether whether he's serving bigger. I guess will his like ace rate relative to opponents and surface or something continue to be higher? Uh, yes, although we have weird precedents of top players 
finding a big serve at a slam and then and then losing it again short shortly thereafter but I, I don't know i have a hunch this is more lasting yeah it does seem that way so i really like this question even though it's mine so i'm tuning my own horn here what's one country that will have a bigger tennis presence in 10 or 15 years than it does now hmm uh i haven't I've given this as much thought as it'll take to answer it, but I'll say Sweden just based on historically having been having a lot of tennis tradition, but being on a bit of a downswing lately. I'm I'm big on Greece. I don't know anything about their their tennis infrastructure. I'm guessing it's not great, but having Sitsipas and Sakari right now is it's historically unprecedented and could be huge. So I'm excited to see what happens there. Um, wh whatever the right answer to that question is, it's probably a European country because it's plugged into this uh, transportation network where so many of the tournaments are played at lower levels. Uh, this next one is one of yours, Carl. What will be the ages of the oldest and youngest major winners in women's singles over the next decade? I'll answer my own as long as you do as well. Uh, oldest and youngest over the next decade. Um, 30 and 19 that sounds about right so no serena i mean that that is the implication yeah yeah i mean I, I, i'm not I sure about that up, but <laughs> yeah i think we could end up with an older winner although i'm i'd have to think more about who that would be um but i mean if we're talking about the next decade then somebody who's 25 right now could be a 35 year old winner it's and i don't see a reason why older players wouldn't continue to be successful. But but yeah, I do think we'll we'll keep getting more teenagers, at least occasionally, and maybe some that we haven't even seen yet. Um, another one of yours, what will be the heights of the tallest and shortest major winners in men's singles over the next decade? Okay, you gotta do it too. Um, six, six, and 5'11"? So no Riley Opelka. Well, he might get shorter, but yeah, no, not at his current height. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. I can't think of anyone above 6'6 who I would pick right now, and that does seem to be the current maximum level of being a really good all-around tennis player. And below 5'11", you're pretty much talking Schwartzman. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm not picking him. So yeah, I like those numbers. Uh, what's one thing tennis could do to reduce the overwhelming amount of conflicts of interest among executives, coaches, commentators, and journalists, and etc.? All of this conflict, you know, conflict of interest. I mean, maybe try to have some kind of a tennis-wide conflict of interest policy about being paid by two conflicting groups within some time period. That might do it. I think the biggest problem is that the sport just isn't big enough. Like, there's so many of these sort of national-level units where... There's so many jobs to be done. So, for instance, when Kasper Rude's on TV in Norway and they need to have an expert, like how many experts are there to choose from in Norway? I mean, there aren't very many, and one of them is the head of the federation. So, I mean, you have the head of the federation being the go-to guy to be a color commentator. And, I mean, it's not wrong, but it is sort of a built-in conflict of interest. I mean, it's not, it's not obviously a problem, but it seems like it, 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 it's one step away from some obvious problems. Um, something more topical Will Sloane Stevens or Jeannie Bouchard ever be good again? Yeah, maybe another way to think of it is like, what will their highest rank from from today be? I don't know, maybe like 40 and 80, respectively? Hmm. I, uh, they're two very different cases, because I, 
I'm willing to believe that Bouchard's concussion at the U.S. Open a few years ago, that that was, that made her potential or ability level nonlinear. That she's never going to be a top 10 player again. She doesn't have flashes of brilliance the way that Sloan does, or at least did until a year and a half ago. So I think Bouchard could be a top 50 player and maybe stay there for years. Sloan is seems like this giant yo-yo. Like I, I, I can imagine a world where she comes back and wins another Grand Slam in two years. I can also imagine a world where she's out of tennis in two years. So it's two really tough pred- predictions to make. Um, okay, 80 questions down. Once again, we're going to have to barrel through these last 20. Um, next question from Jeff McFarland. True or false, right now the ATP needs the WTA more than the WTA needs the ATP? false i think they need each other about the same amount mm, I've, i this is not a super popular thing to say but i think the wta desperately needs the atp i think the the management is so much better on the atp side the product might soon be a lot better on the wta side but i mean there's got to be some reckoning or some resolution of how much the wta has gone big on china i think we have that question coming up soon so we'll talk about it more then Next one from Twitter. This is from uh, Dami1FR on Twitter. Which type of players are favored by windy conditions? Mm. I think players who can hit with a lot of topspin and also players who can come to net and and not deal with as much flight of ball uh, and also players with more compact ball tosses. That all seems fair. Next question from Jeff McFarland. What is missing in tennis journalism right now? I think it could use more tennis journalism. There's some great work being done, and I'm not going to name people for leaving out those who I don't think to name, but that we could just use more uh, reporting outside the confines of the the structure of the events and the tours um, about what's going on with certain players, what's going on with, with the structure of the sport. I, I think there's a lot of questions we don't really have answers to about what happened during the pandemic. Not that there was some giant scandal, but just that, um, I haven't read like a really good narrative of, of how we ended up with the season we did. I would add what's missing in tennis journalism right now is Carl Bialik, just throwing it out there. Um, next question, at what age will Serena play her last singles match at a major? Ooh. See, I, I wrote this partly because I'm not sure if she could be tempted to like make a, a real comeback or a one event comeback down the road. Uh, I don't think she would, but she's she's changed her mind about things before. So short of that, I'll say 42. I was going to say 42 also. If you could go back in time to any tennis match, which would you choose? Hmm. Wimbledon 2010, Isner Mayut. Really? Okay. Mine, uh, I'm taking a very different approach to this one. 1957 uh, Wimbledon final, Althea Gibson. I even forget. Oh, that was against Darlene Hard. That was her first Wimbledon title. I think that's a... A, I just love to see her play, um, since there's no video aside from a couple of highlights for Althea Gibson. But, uh, I mean, that's a huge historical event that was probably also some good tennis. Uh, this next one from Twitter. This is from Will Bocek on Twitter. Is there ever a scenario where it's best to choose to receive after winning the toss? 
I mean, I think your research and maybe other people's has shown that there isn't really a big advantage to serving first. So in that case, yeah, the scenario is when you want to receive first, when you feel good about it, when you're excited to get a chance to break first. Um, yeah, I don't, I, especially if you think it could throw your opponent. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's there's no there's no structural advantage to serving first. A lot of people like to do it, but there's no mathematical reason to choose to serve first. So whatever you feel more comfortable doing, or if you think there's some advantage with the conditions and the wind or something, then there's no reason not to. Next one, when will the ATP first have an openly gay player? Yeah, I think you wrote this, and I was, was wondering how we defined it, but let, let's say top 200, something like that. Is sure. It, okay. And active because there have been retired players. So um, I think I think really soon. I think like twenty twenty five. Yeah, I think it'll be a doubles player that'll have to, that'll be first. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's close. Um, as promised earlier, apart from the fact that COVID makes it look very wrong, was the WTA right to go so big on China? I I would have trouble condemning it completely because we don't know. Com- exactly what the financial and other considerations were but i think generally speaking it it was a risky bet it was too risky of a bet it was definitely risky as it's looking now um back to the atp from jeff mcfarland you are the marketing pr director for the atp federer djokovic and nadal have retired what's your number one strategy Hmm. <laughs> try to get a lot of video of them talking about how great all the other players are along with highlights of those other players winning big points against Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. I don't know. (laughs) Run a lot of videos of that. I think there's enormous potential for marketing Stefano Tsitsipas. And when those guys are retired, Tsitsipas, Rublev, um, those guys are going to be winning slams because somebody has to, or maybe they'll, they'll really deserve it. But I think they're, they're marketable stars. There might be a little bit of a lag when people have, don't know what to do when Federer retires, but we're already there. And I mean, Djokovic and Nadal, in terms of global global spectator appeal, they are a step down from Federer, fair or not. And tennis has been fine without Federer for the last 14 months, and it will continue to be. So I, I have a lot more thoughts about how tennis should market itself differently that aren't going to fit in the structure of this show. But I mean, it doesn't need to change that much. So next question, also from Jeff McFarland, which of these players will be the first to win their second Grand Slam? Bianca Andreescu, um, Ashley Barty, Sofia Kennan, Yelena Ostapenko, Sloane Stevens, or Iga Um I guess it's like a safe choice, but Barty. Barty does seem like the safe choice. I might lean Andreescu if she proves she's healthy, and I have to say again, I'm so big on Iga Sviantec. Um such enormous potential it just might not happen quite as soon as the more developed game of ashley barty yeah she might be the first to win their her fifth yeah or the only to win her fifth out of that group so 10 more to go we're going to super lightning around these um which man who has never played professional tennis would be most successful if he took it up today full-time i wrote this wanting you to answer so my answer okay i'll answer yeah go Johannes Tingnes Bu. He's a biathlete from Norway. That was my answer. I think that... Yeah, I mean, that's the obvious answer. Um, Carl, who's the guest you'd most likely like to have on your show? You know, I've never had you on my show, Jeff. So uh, I'm going to say you. 
You know, I've noticed. Well, we can probably make this Let's happen. let that sit there awkwardly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next question. At what age will Djokovic play his last singles match at a major? Mm, with same caveat of like, maybe he could be tempted into a comeback match at 40. I'm going to say 37. That sounds about right. Um, will there be more or less serve and volley in men's singles at Wimbledon in 2040? Um, more in men's, the same in women's. So basically none in women's. <laughs> uh, but you think there'll be more in men's? Slightly more, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of time for technological change to make us look stupid and or irrelevant. So that seemed like as, as a reasonable answer as any. N another one from Jeff McFarland. Um, he points out that last year we both said that we thought Serena would win another major. I don't remember saying that, but I'll believe Jeff. Um, do you still think so? I guess I already said, implied that I think probably not. But, you know, not, yeah. not like 80%, maybe like 60%. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a weird question to answer because I wouldn't be surprised at all if she wins any of the next, let's say, seven or eight slams. But yeah, I, I think the, the weighted average is, it rounds down to zero at this point. Uh, last one from Petter. Um, what do you think about Hawkeye Live and the fact that it will replace line judges? Does it make the sport better or fairer or what's your take? I think it makes the sport better or fairer. I think we've talked about like tweaks to the voices used and uh, the Hawkeye technology itself can always get better. But I think it overall makes things better and fairer and also simpler. Yeah, I've been really pleasantly surprised by how how good it is and how smooth it is. Um, four more to go. Is Serena Williams the greatest of all time of women's tennis? I reject the premise of a question about an active player but um it's really close right now someday i'll write more about this we talked about it a little bit on a, on a previous episode um for me the goat is martina navratilova um the all the numbers i've run so far say it's martina navratilova serena is extremely good and in the conversation but she's not going to overtake martina for me anyway um three to go will riley opelka have a better career than john isner no yeah, I, we'll leave it at that. Last question from Jeff McFarland. Is Daniel Medvedev the best Russian player ever or even now? Uh, not ever. Um, and yes, now. Yeah, definitely now. But yeah, I mean, Safin, Sharapova. There's, there's a number of Russian players who are probably better careers at this point. Um, final question. This is one from you, Carl, but I want your answer. What's a mythical mixed doubles pairing you'd most enjoy? Mm. Um, Laver Navratilova. Ooh, that's a fun one. I'll say Arthur Ashe, Serena Williams. Um, but I mean, I could do this all day. Another good one, Beverly Baker and Jan Michael Gamble. Beverly Baker was an ambidextrous and hit forehands on both sides, and Jan Michael Gamble hit backhands on both sides. So on average, they had the right number of forehands and backhands. <laughs> and they're both American, so they can play Hopman Cup. Perfect. And Olympics. All right. 
Well, that is the end of the time I have today. I need to run and pick up my son, who's probably very worried I forgot about him. Um, this has been episode 100 with our 100 questions about tennis. Thank you, Carl, very much for joining me and partaking in this carnival. Thanks, everyone, for submitting uh, all the questions. It was great to have some of these to think about. Some of these will undoubtedly inform our conversations in future shows. So thanks, everyone, for listening to Times 100, and we'll see you next time. 